So, chances are, you know humans have landed on the moon. Most people know that. 1969, Apollo 11. But the question is, how? So today, I'm going to be doing a longer podcast about the whole process of getting humans to and back from the moon. Back from is probably a little more important, considering, you know, you don't want to leave people on the moon. May not be the smartest choice. So, Saturn V, it was big. 110.6 meters, or 363 feet, tall. That's a lot bigger than any rocket ever used in the Gemini or Mercury programs. By a lot. It's not the biggest rocket ever designed, but it's one of the biggest ever built and launched. There are a couple that beat it. Falcon Heavy, made by SpaceX, beats it in a couple stats. I think it beats it in thrust. And NASA's new space launch system, that's just going to be the Saturn V on a whole new level. So the Saturn V, it's 363 feet tall. I'm going to be using customary for this. Um, 33 feet in diameter. So that's, it's big. You may ask, well, how does it fly? uses rocket engines. You can check out the last podcast on that, rocket engines and how they work. Um, So it uses five of the biggest single combustion chamber liquid-fueled engines ever built, the Rocketdyne F1. It's a truly remarkable engine. You could fit a decent-sized group of people underneath it because it's just... Huge. So it has five of those on the first stage. And um, the second stage uses Rocketdyne J2, which is slightly smaller. F1's really, really little brother. It's not tiny, but in comparison, it really is. Third stage contains one of those. Fourth stage, well, there isn't really a fourth stage, but then there's a fairing that has the lunar module inside. Then there's the service module. And sitting on top of that's the command module. During launch, there's the launch escape system. But once that becomes unused, like at the point where it would no longer be useful, that gets jettisoned. So, <clears throat> stage one. What does it do? Gets the rocket basically into orbit. So, that's what'll get it into orbit around Earth. And remember, the Saturn is only going to the moon. So you want to use as little as possible to get to Earth orbit and as little as possible to get to the moon. So that way you can simply have a smaller rocket, less expensive, to get back to Earth and to the moon in the first place. Because, well, it's NASA. They don't want to be spending more money than they need to. So you've got your first stage, you get into orbit, And then you go to the second stage. The second stage, too, would also be used to boost it into orbit, because it's just so massively heavy. 5.04 million pounds. That's... mm, To put it simply, 
more than your car weighs. More than 10 of your car weighs, unless you're driving some crazy, super heavy car. So the second stage and the certain stage two, just get it into orbit, get the orbit circularized, and so it won't dip back into the atmosphere and aero break onto the surface. Because, I mean, if you don't want to be going back to Earth before you even go to the moon, that's probably what you want to do. Um, so the third stage, and then what I find interesting about this is that the command module and service module, they actually detach from the rest of the rocket, turn 180 degrees, so then the capsule's pointed back down, while the lunar module is still attached to the third stage, it basically uses reaction control thrusters to push and dock with the lunar module. So that was kind of interesting, I found, because <clears throat> you'd think it would just be conjoined from the start, but the Gemini program was actually helping practice for docking for that very purpose among several other things. Um, so then, basically, the service module and command module, along with the lunar module, which are all docked together, those go engines are used. It's a transfer is made, which is when one orbit is opened up to another gravitational body. So it basically gets slingshotted to the other one. And then you would turn the rocket around and burn the thruster the opposite direction in which the rocket is going to slow it down and get it into an orbit around the other body. That's how almost every single landing has ever been done. Um, you do that, but so it's in orbit. And then two of the astronauts go into the lunar module. So in Apollo 11, that would be Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, or Edwin Aldrin, if you want to call him by his real name. Um, so you they go into the lunar module, it detaches and then burns against the direction the rocket is moving or retrograde in orbit and deorbits onto the moon's surface. And it's packed up all tight when it's inside the payload fairing, but then the legs would deploy. And so it lands on the surface. Michael Collins in Apollo 11, he, if this is the mission we're talking about, he would still be circling the moon in the command module and service module together. And this crazy thing is, so they would have contact for most of it, but for about an hour on the far side of the moon, they would lose radio contact, which is just crazy being on the far side of the moon, the furthest a human has ever been from any other humans. And with no radio contact, that would be scary because if something went wrong, no one would never no one would ever know. So, Michael Collins is orbiting while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are down on the surface doing their moon stuff. So when it's time to come up, the lunar lander is actually two stages. So you have your descent stage, which is the gold part at the bottom, but then you also have your crew and ascent stage, which is the part at the top that's all silver. And Basically, when they're ready to go up, they get into that, and it detaches from the bottom, rocket engines fire, it gets back up into orbit, docks with the command module, and you're ready to go home. So, you're ready to go home, but you've got 
a lunar module sent stage still attached to the command module. That would require more force or burn time to get back to Earth, and it would have no purpose as it probably would not survive re-entry. So they actually just jettisoned it while in lunar orbit, let its orbit decay, and yeah. Um, so then they would conduct another orbital transfer, get back into Earth orbit, and then deorbit it using the service module engines. And the service module would jettison, burn up in the atmosphere, and then the command module, where all the people are, that would that would ha that's the only part of the spacecraft that would have a heat shield and survive reentry. Although it would not be reused, as it would be cheaper just to make another one. And so you have your command module comes down. It has to be within a very 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 precise angle. Otherwise, because if it comes in too shallow, no one actually knows what would happen, but many of the theories suggest that it would bounce off of the atmosphere, and scientific research has proved that it's, that's probably the most likely thing that would happen. So if it bounced off the atmosphere, they don't really have the oxygen to survive for all that much longer, or another attempt. And if they came in too steep they would come in too fast. And it turns out the heat shield cannot handle a lot more than it's actually made to handle. And it's only made to handle what it needs to handle. So, if you're going too fast, you're gonna burn up. And that's not a good thing. So, it would come down, and the parachutes would deploy. It would land in the ocean at around 25 miles an hour. Which is fast, but it's better than the modern-day Soyuz capsules which come down on land. I don't know how fast they go, but um, an astronaut described a Soyuz capsule landing as a car crash, and that's not the best experience. Um, so you've got your command module, and then you would have all the rescue crews. But the interesting thing is, on Apollo 11, they didn't actually know if there were any sicknesses that could be caused by moon dust, because even though you aren't going to be on the moon with your spacesuit off, you're going to be on the moon with your spacesuit. And the moon dust is going to get onto your spacesuit. And you aren't going to climb out of your spacesuit before you go back into the uh, ascent stage. So you're bringing lunar dust into the ascent stage with you. So they don't. nobody knew if there were any sicknesses that could be contracted by inhaling or even touching this lunar dust. So they were kept in quarantine in a trailer for, I believe it was around a month, which is just crazy because they were only on the mission for a little longer than a week. And then they come back and have to spend a month in a trailer. That's a little ridiculous, but we didn't know anything. So <clears throat> the Saturn V rocket, now that we've done discussing the mission, the rocket itself is something that really needs to be recognized. As I mentioned before, it is 363 feet tall, 33 feet in diameter, and 5.04 million pounds, or 110.6 meters, 10.1 meter diameter, and 2.29 million kilograms, 
<coughs> if you're a metric person. Um, so, the fact that it was even able to get off the ground is something. And the Saturn V's F- 5 F1 engines, they had to be pretty strong for it to work out. They each provided around a million pounds of thrust, and that's a lot. They're still the most powerful engine to be pr- produced, at least at the time this podcast was made, and I doubt that record is going to be broken anytime soon. And you should check out the other podcast I did on rocket engines and how they work, but essentially a rocket engine pushes against the rocket, not against the air as it might be believed, jet engines and... uh. Piston engines, which would be used on a propeller plane or a jet plane, those are actually expelling gases pressing against the air around them. Whereas a rocket, there's no air in space. So it's actually designed to push against the rocket itself. So, yeah, it's actually rather interesting how that works. Um, But the Saturn V is part of the extensive project that America started with the Mercury program. Well, technically, it started with the Bumper V2, which was captured technology from the Germans from the Second World War, and it was developed into things that could be used for just scientific purposes. So America's first attempted satellite was launched aboard a Vanguard rocket. It didn't work. Um, Look up... Vanguard rocket fails America's first satellite, things of that sort, because those are, that's really shining a light on the fact that America did not succeed all the time. That, that's where we just kind of failed. It came two feet up off the ground and then came back down and exploded. So fast forward a little bit, we launched, uh, Explorer 1, that was not a satellite without a purpose, um, as it actually discovered belts of radiation. And um, so then then you've got the Mercury program. So you have the Redstone rocket, which gets humans up and then down. It's not getting them into orbit like the uh, uh, Russian spacecraft did. So first human in space, done by the Russians, they actually got into orbit for the first human in space. America, we took it a little slower. We launched a person into space, but they were only in space for a couple of minutes. Basically, they came straight up, then straight down. So that's the Redstone rocket. But America was not going to stop there. We decided, okay, the Mercury program, we need to get people into orbit. So the Atlas rocket was developed. It was a rocket basically used to get into orbit. That's That was its sole purpose as a rocket. So we did that. Then, of course, we're America, so we still strap people to rockets that were used for military. So then you've got your Gemini program. So you take your Titan II missile, intercontinental ballistic missile, and strap two astronauts in a tin can to the top of it. Because, yeah, why not? So... There were two types of dockings performed with the Gemini capsules. 
they were either decked with the Agena target vehicles, which were unmanned probes launched into orbit shortly before or after the uh, Gemini mission was launched, or they were docking with other Gemini rockets, which is actually pretty remarkable considering they would just launch two rockets within a couple of hours of each other and just dock them in orbit. So America was the first to dock in orbit. And then, so we decided that was basically in preparation for all the docking necessary during the Apollo program. So then we moved on to Apollo. It did not have a good start. So Apollo 1, during a uh, pre-flight, just a mock-up of a launch, um, three astronauts died in a capsule fly- capsule fire. It was not aboard a Saturn V rocket. It was actually a capsule sitting aboard a Saturn 1B, which is a Saturn V that can take the lunar module, service module, and command module to low Earth orbit. It can't go to the moon. So there is a... In those, they had an 100% oxygen atmosphere because there was really no need for fire aboard the spacecraft, so they didn't think that would be a danger. However, um, faulty wiring caused a spark to ignite the inside of the spacecraft, and the three astronauts aboard it did not survive. Um, So that didn't start out well. And then during Apollo 6 and 7, which were unmanned flights, um... They basically experienced a couple of problems that were resulting from them working too fast towards... Because it was a space race, so they were trying to get to the moon before the Russians. Um, Because the Russians had launched a probe, like, around the moon before they'd even gotten a man in space. So, obviously, we wanted to get someone to the moon. So, what we did was we rushed ahead and caused possible danger to astronauts. And basically, they experienced vibrations aboard one of the test Apollo flights that would have been enough to kill anyone on board. Luckily, they were unmanned, so no one was hurt. But that was not a good thing. So, and everyone assumes Apollo 11 was the most productive Apollo mission. Now, you may agree with that, but... I really think it was probably Apollo 8. So Apollo 11, it was planned if they, if everything was lined up and it would work to land on the moon, then that's what they would do. But Apollo 8, they were planning to just do stuff around Earth, but they decided to instead go not just to the moon, but enter orbit around the moon. And there was very low chance, because that kind of thing... The calculations were being done, like, on the fly. They weren't, it wasn't uh, some master plan they'd come up with a year earlier. Like, the calculations were very, like, uh, something that would be done, and then they would use it soon after. So, there was very high risk with that mission, and yet, the engine that had never been tested before reignited and worked the way it should have to send astronauts back to Earth. And that was probably the most crucial part of the mission, as many people were worried that 
that's where they would fail. That's where all the astronauts would die or be stranded in lunar orbit. But it worked. They made it, which is really miraculous. As a book describes, um, uh, the accuracy the accuracy required to do this sort of moon mission is like throwing a dart at an orange that you or a peach that you threw in the air. So someone throws a peach in the air, and from thirty feet away, you have to throw a dart and only touch the fuzz on the outside of the peach. That's how precise you need to be. That. That should explain just how crazy this whole idea was, even if you aren't someone who likes to throw darts at peaches. I know I don't do that for fun, but... So that's... It's just crazy. The level of precision needed to do this is just insane. So, obviously, it was a miracle that it worked. Apollo 13, that was... I consider it to be a successful, not a successful mission, but a successful failure, as that's kind of actually what its nickname is, as you have your Apollo 13, you're going to the moon, uh, liquid oxygen, or I think it might have just been compressed oxygen, explodes, and three people cramming into a lunar module that's made for two, and surviving where they shouldn't have been able to survive, and having enough fuel to go back to Earth. They didn't land on the moon, but the fact that they survived is insane. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever heard about. And I guess uh, (laughs) just everything went pretty well for uh, the Apollo program. So there is something, it's called the Apollo-Soyuz Test Project, or it was uh, also known as Apollo 18. It was the first time Russia and America docked spacecraft in space. So um, that happened. That was pretty cool, considering it was an Apollo command module and service module with a docking adapter on it going up and docking with the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And again, similar things were done in later years, like docking with the Mir space station, which I actually got the fortune of meeting the astronaut who piloted the space shuttle that first docked with the Mir space station. And it's pretty incredible, just, yeah, how... One minute we're having a cold war and racing to send people to the moon and ignoring obvious safety things to do that. And then the next we're going up to their space stations. We're docking in space. It's it's pretty impressive. And then we're building, you know, $100 billion space station. And that is not an exaggeration. That is a realistic figure on how much the ISS costs. And that is actually the most expensive man-made object So I think that pretty much wraps it up for this episode, and hope to see you next time.